You heard me say, I'm going away, and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not, I will not speak to you much longer, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father, and I will do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. All right, thank you, Justin. First of all, I want to thank uh, Pat Stahl for filling in for me last week, and he did a wonderful job, and he had told me at the beginning he just had one, and I said, oh, you got to have another one sometime, and he said, yeah, I might have another one, um, and then uh, I want to thank Roger Hoyt, our lay leader, for helping out in the service, as well as Blake Carlson, and just for leading. I appreciate their love and their, their leadership. As you know, we're going through John, uh, the Gospel of John, and we're already on chapter 14, but did you know that most of John, or at least 10 chapters of John, is about the last week of Jesus' life? John gives more attention to the last week of Jesus' life than any of the other Gospel writers, and it's because that's why Jesus was born. He was born to die. And so I want to talk about what dying meant to Jesus, what the cross meant to Jesus, and especially as we look forward to partaking of Holy Communion later on in the service, um, you know, we want to take time to remember the last week of Jesus' life. We certainly remember the Last Supper. Uh, Remember the washing of the disciples' feet? We covered that in John chapter 13. Uh, The betrayal, that's coming. The Garden of Gethsemane, where he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. The monkey trial before Pilate. The denial, the scourging, the mockery, the carrying of the cross. Uh, Through the crowd up the Via Della Rosa, we were just there about a month ago, saw all this. And to that hill, or that place called Calvary. And then the nails, you know, we think of the nails uh, being driven through his quivering flesh and the blood, we think of his innocent blood um, running down. But we are not simply focusing on somebody who went through a terrible death for a cause. We're focusing on one who actually bore our sins in his own body that he might give to us his very righteousness. And so we remember the cross. And today, Holy Communion helps us to remember the cross, the blood, sweat, and the tears, his body that was broken. And for Christians, really, it's kind of a sweet remembrance. Uh, That's because the word Eucharist, it actually means, you know, kind of joy. It's a a joyful thing. It's a sweet uh, remembrance, believe it or not. You know, we're the only people in the world that have as the symbol of our joy an instrument of torture. Did you know that? I mean, do you know any other religious group that wears like a rack around their neck? Or do you know anybody that actually carries a machine gun around their neck as a symbol? Or do you know anybody that carries a guillotine as an emblem of their fellowship? We are the only people in the world that have a torture instrument as a symbol. We're the only people who take it, we stick it up on our wall, 600 pounds of that thing. In our churches, so that the whole world can see. Why? Because for us, it's a sign of joy, isn't it? 
because of all the sin that he bore there. We do not have to bear our sin. And so we say with the Apostle Paul, you know, I preach Christ and him crucified. I'm determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, the greatest thing in my life is the cross. I think of the old hymns that we sometimes sing. In the cross of Christ I glory. You know, when I survey the wondrous cross, we sing, I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. And then we sing, I'll what? I'll cherish the old rugged cross. What kind of fools are we to take as the emblem of our very relationship with the living God, the symbol of our songs, the kind of medallion of our faith, a cross? It's because of what it meant. And we know what it meant for us. It, it, it meant salvation. It meant forgiveness. It meant redemption. What, what we were singing about, that last song especially, you know, we're free, free, you know, freedom and eternal life. But just for a moment today, I want us to see what the cross meant to Jesus. And just let me reread uh, that passage. Jesus said, I'm going, uh, you heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father, and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Wow. Let me set the stage here. You know, as you know, uh, Jesus has just told them that he was going to leave, and they were troubled. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Their hearts were, were troubled. Their hearts were broken. In fact, twice. Remember in John chapter 14, uh, he has to say to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Stop letting your hearts be so troubled. I mean, they were literally broken up, weren't they? You see, they had walked with Jesus. They had talked with Jesus. They ate with Jesus for three years, and they had... They had to say goodbye to their families, and they had to say goodbye to their former religion, and they they stepped out, as it were, on an island. And Jesus was that island, and now was the island sinking? To whom would they go? Where would they turn? What resource would they have? And when they needed tax money, they found it in the mouth of a fish. When they were hungry, he created food with his bare hands. When they didn't know the answers, he gave them the answer, and now he was leaving, and all they can think about is their own plight. All they can think about is their own problems and their own anxiety, their own loss. Don't do it, Lord. And so they react kind of in shock. They react in fear of the lonely helplessness that would follow. And remember John 13 when the Lord was preparing his own heart for his death? They were fighting about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Nobody paid attention to him. They were so selfish, really. They were so short-sighted. All they could think about was the tragedy that was going to enter into their lives when they lost Jesus. They didn't understand what the cross meant to Jesus. Look at John 28. 14, 28. It says, uh, I'm going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. You know I'm coming back. You know I'm not going to leave you totally. I'm going away, but I'm going to be back. But all they could see was just him leaving, him going away. And we're no different, are we? 
I mean, some dear person we love who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, they die and they go to heaven, and yet we're so overly despondent. Don't get me wrong. I think a little sorrow is good and normal. I'm going to cry when my mom goes. Absolutely. I think tears are healthy, but constant despair and grief is like a gross selfishness. When a dear saint of God goes to glory to be with Jesus, what's all the sadness about? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, right? I mean, heaven really is a wonderful place, is it not? But you look at death and how it affects you or how it affects the saint. All the disciples could see was their own perspective. They never saw what it meant to Jesus. What did the cross, what did, his, what did dying mean to Jesus? Let me just share four uh, truths with you, tremendous truths. First of all, it, it would mean that his person would be dignified. Look at uh, verse 28b. It says, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than me. Greater than, than I. Wow. In other words, he said, if you really love me, you'll want to rejoice because I'm going to the Father. I am ascending to my Father, to the glorious God of heaven. Now, I believe verse 28 is a reference to the Lord's exaltation. When he came to earth, that was his humiliation. He put on skin. He entered a dark world. But now he's exalted to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He was leaving the world. He was going to his Father, and the fact that he says the Father is greater than I, it's a statement coming out of his incarnation. And what he is saying is this. I've taken this role of a servant, right? I've stepped down and set my prerogatives as God aside. I've taken a step lower, as it were, than God the Father, and I will go back to the one that I serve to be rewarded, to be exalted, to be glorified for having finished the work. And all you have to do is go to John uh, 17, verse 45, and we're going to get to that in a few weeks, where Jesus was praying, Father, I have finished the work which you gave me to do. Now glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. You see, if the disciples had really loved him, they would have rejoiced that he was leaving because his person would be dignified. He would enter back into the very presence of God. Can you imagine the humiliation that Jesus must have felt? I can only weakly imagine how Christ felt in eternal glory. You know, he was face to face with God, John says earlier in this gospel. And uh, I can only imagine how it must have been to be in the glory of the Trinity, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then all of a sudden to come to this earth and if you remember what happened, if you've read the Gospels, you know, he was spit on, he was mocked, he was maligned, he was despised, he was rejected, hated, murdered, and all the time was the Father's beloved. And now he's saying, I'm going back to the one who's greater than I, not in terms of essence, but only in reference to his humiliation. He's going back to the one who sent him to do the work. He's going to offer the work as finished, and so Jesus saw his death as the dignity of his person, to ascend back uh, to that holy hill of God. He had come all the way down to the depths of humiliation, now awaiting him the height of glory. And God exalted him, didn't he? And he gave him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. What did dying mean to Jesus? Not only that his person would be dignified, but also, secondly, his truth would be documented. Look at verse 29. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I mean, this is great. He's saying, look, I'm going to die and I'm going to come back so that everything I've been saying to you You'll see it come to pass. From here on out, no more talk, action. See, Jesus told them before the fact that he was going to die, and he had told them that he would rise again, and he had told them that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. Now he says, I'm done talking. (laughs) It's going to be action. I'm going to my Father, and that means my truth will be documented because I will rise from the grave, and the Spirit of God will come just like I said. And that's what he's saying. I've told you before, so when it comes to pass, you might believe. And what Jesus said actually happened. His person would be dignified. His truth would be documented. And thirdly, what did dying mean to Jesus? What did the cross mean to Jesus? It meant his foe would be defeated. You know, in a sense, he couldn't wait, I think, to get to the cross. Because it was at the cross that he gave that crushing blow to the skull of Satan. Look at verse 30. It says, I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. The prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. I think Jesus was anticipating the cross as a conflict with Satan. He was a foe to be defeated. And John tells us in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, That he came to destroy the works of the devil. And the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, tells us, By death, Satan held men in bondage all their lifetime. Jesus came to shatter the usurper's kingdom. He came to crush his head, just like Genesis 3, 15 promised he would, which is the first prophecy, really, of the Messiah. Satan had been, you know, after Christ his whole life, Satan had been dogging Christ. Trying to, trying to stop Jesus. He, he tried when he was a baby through Herod. I tell you, Herod had a head case. I mean, when we were in Israel, I, you know, Herod built all this stuff for himself, you know, this big palace real close to Bethlehem, and then on the side of Masada, there's another palace for himself. And he spent all that money and time and work, you know, just to, to glorify himself. Well, this, 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 this Herod uh, tried to stop Jesus when Jesus was just a little baby, and he and Satan uh, tried to tempt him on, on the way. And he, he tried, Satan tried to shove Jesus off a cliff one time. And he tried to send his demons to assault him. And he tried uh, blinding men so that they couldn't see the truth. And all along, Satan was just being set up for like this crushing blow on the cross. And the disciples should have rejoiced. For when he went to the cross, he would do the one thing, the one thing that he came to do, and that is to destroy the works of the devil. That's what he came to do. At least that's what the scripture says. And what looked like the greatest defeat would be the greatest victory when Jesus died on the cross, bearing in his body sin, 
Hell was holding, as one man said, high carnival. I mean, thinking that they've won the day, but while his body was dead, his spirit alive, descended into that place where the demons are bound. And as Colossians tells us, he proclaimed triumph over them in the cross. And then he blasted out of the shackles of death. And Jesus just came busting out of that tomb, breaking the Roman seal, and is alive forevermore. Satan is vanquished. He's a defeated foe. Amen? Yeah. He threw everything he had at Jesus, but Jesus Christ is alive. And so the disciples should rejoice, as he said in verse 28. If you loved me, you rejoice. Why? Because my person would be dignified. My truth would be documented. My enemy will be defeated. And one more truth, my love would be demonstrated. Verse 31a says, but the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. You just stop right there. The cross is not only a statement of Christ's love for us. The cross is a statement of Christ's love for the Father. You see, God the Father sent Jesus to the cross I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. In other words, the greatest proof of love is what? It's obedience. You know, I was told uh, Friday by someone in the church, they had overheard uh, maybe a KFNW uh, fact or information, and, and this information was, what does the world think about when they think about the Christian church now? It doesn't mean it's, it's true what they think about, but there might be some grains of truth. And here's three words that the world thinks about the church right now. You ready? They think we're judgmental. They think we're hypocrites. And they think we're anti-science. Again, I'm not saying it's, all, it's true or not, but that's... That's how we are perceived in this world, as judgmental, as hypocrites, and as anti-science. And I think the world is almost screaming at us in an indirect way, show me Jesus. Don't just tell me about Jesus, show me Jesus. And his love was demonstrated. He didn't just say, I love you. Jesus demonstrated his love for the Father and for us on the cross. And Jesus is saying, you know, when I go to the cross, I'm going to prove to the world that I love the Father. Oh, he had claimed to love his father already in this chapter. It's one thing to claim it. It's another thing to verify it. And so he says, by going to the cross and dying to death, I'm going to prove my love for the father. And that's what Jesus' death meant to him. And so Calvary, as we focus our attention on the cross, don't just look at it from your point of view. Although it's wonderful to think about the cross and what it means to us, think about uh, think of what it meant for Jesus. Think of all those years of humiliation. And he would finally be glorified. Think that it meant all of the promises that he had made would finally come to pass. 
think that it meant the enemy who was on his tail for all 33 years of his life would finally receive this crushing blow. Think that it meant that he could demonstrate on the greatest stage of the universe in that climatic moment in all of history that he loved his father. And that's what the cross meant to him. And I'll tell you something, I'm thankful for such a savior, aren't you? Who did his work so well that he glorified, he was glorified by his father, who spoke the truth so perfectly that it all comes to pass, who in himself contained so much power that all the forces of hell couldn't hold him in the grave. And to think that he loved the Father that much, and that self-same love is extended to each one of us. What a Savior we have. And we get to celebrate him again, like we do at the first Sunday of every month in Holy Communion. We celebrate his passion, his love for us, and the victory that he's won for us on the cross. Let's pray, pray together. Father, I want to thank you that we can see the reality of Jesus' death, not just from our viewpoint, but from his, which can only really enhance our perspective. Father, we're so grateful. We don't always know how to express that gratitude, but we're grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.